We're on the Mishnah regarding vows of exaggeration, which are null and void. And we brought two examples. Uh, the second one is, um, this bread will be prohibited to me if I did not see a snake that is as big as a beam of an olive press. Um, since he is exaggerating and he did not actually see uh, in a, um, a, a beam that size, uh, so therefore uh, he's just exaggerating and even though he did not actually see a snake that size, nevertheless the, he, the bread is permitted uh, because he was just saying, I saw a big snake, we're not taking him literally. The Gemara is going to ask about this case because there actually are snakes that are that big. If you go to a zoo, you'll see one. We'll get there in a few minutes. But first we're going to deal with the first example. A person says, um, this bread is prohibited to me if I did not see a population as many as those that left Egypt. Uh, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, right? Over 600,000. Uh, so we assume that he did not actually see that many people. Uh, never, and therefore, if we take him literally, since he did not see that many people, the vow should be valid. Uh, but he was just exaggerating. He saw a really big crowd. And um, and that was true. So therefore, he the 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 vow the this neder does not um, uh, does not apply, and the bread would be permitted. Okay, so that's what we that's that was the mishnah. And now we're going to ask a question about this. Um, maybe he means something else that uh, is not an obvious interpretation, but is a personal interpretation of what he said. And we could take it literally. Says, how do you know the person is using language of exaggeration? And we saw a lot of people and he said, I saw a million people. Maybe um, this person, he actually is thinking of an anthill, um, right? Or ants, maybe it's related to sumsum, like little small things, a whole lot of them, uh, like sesame seeds. Um, uh, but the word means, uh, means bugs or ants. He saw a, an ant colony and he took an oath regarding the ant colony. I saw so many, a population so big as much as the Jews that the Israelites that left Egypt. He didn't actually say, I saw human beings, a population. He saw a huge, a huge population. Population of what? He didn't specify. So even though people hearing him will assume that he means people, but he in his mind might have been talking about ants. And therefore, it's a valid vow because an ant colony, I just checked it out, um, it, ant colony can have hundreds of thousands of ants in it. Here's a picture of one uh, ant colony making a bridge. So maybe that's what he means. This is Rav, uh, um, Ravina's question to Rav Asher. And Rav Asher answers, So no, when a person makes a vow, he makes a vow based on our understanding, based on the common understanding of language. If a common listener would hear him say, I uh, make a 
neder uh, that I saw, uh, all this spread is prohibited. If I did not see a population the size of those who left Egypt, people listening will assume common sense language is that he means human beings. And so whenever whenever a person makes an oath, he's he's doing so based on our common uh, common uh, common understanding. And nobody listening is thinking in their mind, oh, I think he's referring to ants. And that's why we uh, that's why it's clear that it's an exaggeration because it's very hard to find uh, that number of human beings. They didn't have Times Square back then. And therefore, it's, it is an exaggeration and it's null and void. Okay, so this is going to prompt a very important discussion that when a person makes, a, makes an oath, does can he have a private interpretation that only he has in mind? Or it, do we look at the words themselves the way they are commonly interpreted? And so we're going to see a couple of examples. So we're going to challenge this statement of Rav Asher. Rav Asher says we use the public interpretation. And we ask, Wait, can a person not make a vow based on his personal, private interpretation of his words? Here's an example where we see that a person can do so. When a person comes to Betin and the Betin, for whatever reason, makes him uh, uh, swear, right? You have to swear that you paid the money or that you didn't receive the money. Before the uh, litigant make swears, the judges tell him, listen, you, know, you have to be careful. This is a serious thing not to swear. And so you better tell the truth. And they also tell him, you should know that it's not based on any condition that you have in your own mind that we are giving you this vow, but rather based on our understanding and the understanding of Betin, right? Don't hold a condition in your mind. You know, you're thinking the word not. You're thinking the, you know, some uh, synonym of a word that you said. Um, and uh, but rather it's based on our common public understanding. Now, why does the Betin need to tell him that? What are we afraid of? La Pukemai, what might he do? Lav la lehon shema zuze. We must be afraid of. You know what he's going to do? He's going to um, uh, think of in his mind of game tokens. Here's an actual game token that was used like a, a checker piece from the Roman period, they'd make it out of something cheap, some bone, uh, not metal, but it would look like a, like a token, kind of like a poker chip. And so when the person uh, uh, makes a vow, he says, I vow, I, 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 I gave you, uh, or I will give you $500. But in his mind, he's thinking of Monopoly dollars, right? Yes, I gave you 500 Monopoly dollars. Remember what? We played Monopoly. I gave you that money. And, um, and thereby, he makes a vow. Now, everybody listening uh, doesn't know. He didn't say Monopoly dollars, so we assume he means real money. Um, so that's why we're excluding it. The Betin has to tell him it's based on our common understanding and not your case where you're using some token from a game and uh, even though you say a word tokens uh, to mean or coins or dollars and we think in our minds that you just you mean actual coins so therefore you see from uh, from this uh, from this source uh, the following inference from the fact that the in this beraita the uh, people have 
have to say, uh, the judges have to say, al this is based on our public understanding. That means that if they didn't say that, a person could make a vow based on his own private interpretation of the words that nobody else knows, and that would be valid. Um, so we see from here the opposite of Rav Asher. Rav Asher said um, that, he, uh, that, that this is invalid because we go by the public interpretation, right? So even if the person had in mind, I was talking about an ant colony when I said population. We forget about that. No, we only go by the public and a private uh, understanding is not valid. But here it seems that if the betin did not make a condition and the person was thinking monopoly money, then that would be valid and he could say, I was thinking monopoly money. Um, and so a private vow is valid, right? And no, no, when the Betin tells him, listen, it's based on our public understanding, it was not coming to exclude a case of monopoly money. That would be that would be no good anyway, right? Because private a private um, uh, understanding of, of your vow is not valid. Rather, we're talking about a case like the cane in the in the story, a following story where Dava was a judge. And now we have a fantastic story. A certain person who was claiming money from another and he came to Dava. Dava, hey, this guy owes me money. I want you to be the judge. So the, the, the one who made the loan said to the borrower, Pay me what you owe me. The borrower says, I already paid you. The judge says, well, if you paid him, then make an oath that you paid him. Right? You don't have proof. So make an oath. The borrower went and he got a cane. Right? And he was, and he, he, uh, he, did, a, he did a trick. He put money, he put coins inside the cane. And then he's leaning upon it and he's walking into the courthouse like he needs a cane. And he, um, and then he comes. And now the borrower tells the, the lender, uh, listen, I'm going to make a vow on a Torah scroll. Would you mind holding my cane for a minute so that I can hold a Torah scroll? And I'm going to make a vow on the Torah scroll. So the lender says, fine, he takes the, um, he takes the cane. And the borrower, and then the borrower said, took the Torah scroll and made a, made a, a swore. He says, I repaid all of the sum that he had in his possession. Yes, I paid everything and it's in the hands of the lender. And literally, it is in the hands of the lender, even though he doesn't know it because he's holding the cane. But inside the cane are, is the exact amount of the uh, coins of what he owes. So yes, he did give the cane, and even though the lender doesn't realize it, this, the vow is true. Now, when the credit, when the lender heard that, he got upset. He's just lying by, uh, outright with the Torah, and so he got so upset. He's holding the cane. He breaks the cane in half. And as he broke it, it was hollow inside, and then the the um, coins fell out and turned out, oh, you see, he actually was telling the truth, right? If you take the literal words, right, I paid him back, and he's, he has it in his hands. 
um, that was the truth. The lender was holding the cane and had coins in it. So that's what this is the kind of case that we want to exclude when the uh, court says, listen, it's based on our public understanding, no tricks allowed. Um, so that's the type of case that we're talking about. But in this case, um, we're not using an unusual uh, um, uh, language. Um, when you say population, everybody mean, thinks you mean population of human beings and not ants. That's an unusual one. Here, um, it's literally true, right? He, I, I paid him back. They, he has that money in his hands. And so that is obviously true. It's just that he doesn't realize it and he's about to give the cane back to the borrower. And so then, uh, you know, then... Um, uh, it won't be true anymore, but at the time he makes the vow, it is true. So this is not 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 considered a private understanding. It's just a trick. Um, it's a public understanding. And yes, it, according to the regular understanding of everyone, I paid him back money. I didn't say monopoly money. That would be a private understanding. I paid him back real coins. He just doesn't know he's holding it, and he doesn't realize he's going to give it back to me. So that's why the the betin makes that condition. But in fact, a private condition like monopoly money would not be valid. Okay. Another challenge to Rav Asher is, are you really saying that, um, uh, that a person cannot make a vow according to his private understanding? Here's another case we're going to deal with for a long Agadah. But says, when Moshe Rabbeinu made Bnei Israel swear at Arvot Ma'av that they are going to fulfill the Torah, he introduced the vow and he said, listen, it's not based on your private understanding that I'm making this vow, but rather based on my understanding and, uh, and based on data makom um, uh, that we make this vow. We say a similar language of data makom in, uh, in, in our uh, in the Kal Nidre prayer, uh, which is uh, so, so it comes from here, right? Uh, we have, it's the absolute understanding, not a, not a private subjective understanding. And this is the interpretation of this midrash of the words in Devarim that I'm not making this this uh, vow only according to you, meaning according to your understanding, but rather according to the common public understanding and God's understanding. Okay, the Peshat of that Pasuk is, I'm not only making this Berit with you, with one generation, but rather with those who are not here, uh, with uh, those, if with future generations. Okay, but this is a nice Midrash. It's taking it to mean that not according to your private understanding. That's the Beraita. Now, what does this mean? What was Moshe worried about that they would have in mind? What kind of private interpretation? Moshe was worried because he said, you're going to take a, an oath according to your private understanding. And, and you're going to say, oh, so we did it based on what we thought. And that's why he has to say, no, based on my understanding. So, what, what might they be thinking that would get them out of having to follow the Torah and yet take the oath based on their private understanding? Maybe they will give a title 
idol uh, to their Avodah Zarah and call it a god. Afterward, the word Elohim can mean Elohim Acherim, right? And so they can, if uh, uh, a, a, a true god or a false, false god, we still use the same word in Hebrew and English too. And so they might be worshiping Baal and they say, you know, Moshe says, you're going to do everything that Hashem told, that, that Elohim told you. And they're thinking, yeah, uh, Baal, Baal, Elohim Acherim, that's Baal, right? And they says, yeah, we, we agree to it, but they're thinking Baal, Moshe is thinking Hashem. And so that's why it's coming to include. And you see from this is a proof that a private understanding of a vow is valid because Moshe had to tell them that you're not allowed to think that private uh, uh, private interpretation. You have to follow my interpretation. So isn't that a good proof against Rav Hashem? No, that's not a private understanding, since in the Torah itself, uh, the word Eloah can mean uh, non-idolatrous uh, 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 gods, as it says, with all Elohim Misraim, uh, the gods of, of, uh, of Misraim. One's permitted to say Elohim Acherim. You can write it, you can say it. This is not, it's not holy in that context. The word uh, the word Elohim has a double meaning. It can mean Hashem and a holy, and it's holy, or it can mean Elohim Acherim and it's not holy. So this is not a private, uh, weird understanding of the word that no one would think of. Um, if someone if someone says the word Elohim, you don't know what they mean. And so since it has both meanings, dictionary good definitions, and so it could mean this, it could mean that. So that's why Moshe had to say it's based on my understanding of the word Elohim, meaning holy, and not based on the other, although very common, uses, usage of the word Elohim Acherim. And so that's why he had to say it, but this is not a private um, uh, private interpretation. Okay, so there's a, a fine line between a private interpretation where no one else would think that. That's just like an unusual use of the word that's just doing a trick like Monopoly Money. Um, as opposed to words that are ambiguous and can, uh, can legitimately mean one or the other, there you have to specify based on my understanding of that word and not your, uh, your understanding. Okay. Wait a second. If Moshe wanted to make sure that they were following the Torah and not some Avodah Zarah, why didn't he, why do you have to say based on my understanding uh, of the word Elohim, he could have just said that you have a vow that you're going to follow mitzvot. Right, and then obviously that would mean misvot of the Torah, right? And not what else could it mean? Um, so why did Moshe just say that? The answer is mashma misvot hamelech. No, the word misvah just means a commandment, and it could refer to any commandment. It could refer to the commandment of of the Torah. That's what Moshe had in mind. But they said they could say, "I thought you were telling us that we should follow the commandment of the king of King Hammurabi, right? Of King uh, Nebuchadnezzar, whatever, King of Edom." And so, yeah, we'll follow that other commandment. And so Moshe would not be sufficient if Moshe just said, Moshe just said that you swear to follow the mitzvot. So you have to say, that's why you have to say my understanding. Another question. How come Moshe doesn't say that you'll follow, you swear that you'll follow all the mitzvot? And so wouldn't that, all the mitzvot, that would surely mean all the mitzvot, meaning the, of the Torah? Uh, no, that also is ambiguous. The people could say, yes, we agree to do all the misvot, but then they would only do misvot because 
We learned that the misvah sisit is equal to all the misvot. So they could say, we had in mind that uh, we were just going to wear sisit, but then we don't have to keep all the other misvot. So that's why Moshe had to say that language at, based on my understanding. Wait, further question. Moshe could have said, you, uh, you vow that you'll keep the, the Torah. Surely that means that they have to keep all the misvot in the Torah, right? No, No, but then that would only mean one Torah, the written law, and they could act like uh, Sadducees or Karaites. And uh, they would say, oh, we only had in mind that. We didn't have in mind the oral law. Okay, Moshe didn't say that you'll fulfill the Torahs in plural, and that would include Torah Shebichtav and Torah Shebe'alpeh. No, that also is ambiguous. The word Torah is also ambiguous. It could mean the entirety of the five books of Moses and the whole oral law. That's what Moshe meant. But they could come and say, uh, no, when we when we agreed to follow the Torah, the, the word Torah just means teachings, and it's included. The word appears in the Torah to refer to the instruction regarding mincha offerings, the instruction regarding chatat, regarding asham offerings. So I thought you meant the Torah, all the instructions in the Torah shebichtav regarding each of those categories. But we did not have in mind the oral law, so we don't have to keep the oral law. So would that it's too ambiguous? Mitzvot. Um, so what if Moshe said Torah and Mitzvot? So surely that would include all the Torahs that are all the sets of instructions in the Torah and all the Mitzvot. And that would include the whole Torah, Shebichtav and Shebaalpeh and all the interpretations, right? No, not necessarily. Torot mashma, Torah mincha, Torah Mitzvot mashma, Mitzvot HaMelech. If he said that, the word Torot we could say it means the individual instructions in the Torah Shebichtav. And Mitzvot, commandments, means the, the commandments of the king, of the king of Edom or whatever king or it could, another interpretation of this is Misvat HaMelech in Sefer Devarim how a king should act we thought you meant Misvat of the king um, only and so it does not include the oral law it does not include anything um, that is outside of this very strict definition of the way the um, the Bnei Israel could say they interpreted it all of these are legitimate interpretations of these ambiguous words Okay, why does Moshe say that you're going to fill the whole Torah? The whole Torah surely includes includes everything, right? No, not necessarily. Torah kula mashma avodazara. Detanya hamora avodazara shekol hakofer ba ki'ilu modeh ba Torah kula. The whole Torah, that might mean only that they will avoid avodazara. Since the Baraita says avodazara is so uh, stringent, uh, so serious that anyone who um, uh, avoids it uh, and and uh, and denies this principle, and it's as if he, uh, anyone who denies idolatry and says idolatry is false, it's as if he agrees with the whole Torah. So this Braita, since it uh, equates a denial of idolatry with fulfilling the whole Torah, then people will say, oh, we had in mind just that we will avoid Avodah Zarah, and that will be the same as fulfilling the whole Torah. We didn't agree to actually fulfill all the other 612 misvot, which is the one about avoiding idolatry. And so that would be a literal uh, interpretation of, of Moshe's words, but a legitimate interpretation because, look, Abraita says it, says, says it itself. So this would not be considered a private 
um, in, in, invalid interpretation. It would be a, an ambiguous, it would still be ambiguous, and Moshe couldn't just say that. All right, uh, lastly, How come Moshe didn't say, instead of saying that you're going to follow my interpretation and, and Hamakom's interpretation, why didn't he say that you swear that you're going to that you're going to keep the law of Avodah Zarah and the whole Torah, then surely that would mean that they have to keep all the misvot, right? Iname shesh me'ot shlosh vesre misvot. Or say, all 613 misvot. Now they can't get out of that. They can't say, oh, I thought you meant, you know, the, the, this, the Torah, meaning Sisit, only Avodah Zarah. Um, that says 613. He can't say he means the laws of Hammurabi. That's not 613. Um, so surely that would be clear enough and that would be sufficient. And so we end, yeah, you're right, he could have said that. He didn't want to be so troublesome to say this exact words, I, I, I command you to keep this exact number of misvot, and then they'll say, had you counted, after all, there are different ways of counting the 613 misvot, Rambam goes against the Bahag and other Geonim, and different poems that count them different ways. So they'll say, I thought you meant this count and not that count. And so that would be confusing. So Moshe said something clear and simple and said I, that you're commanded to keep the, to, to keep the, uh, the, the to, to serve Hashem. And uh, remember, let's remember the exact words that he used in that Baraita. He said, um, right, that you're going to serve Elohim um, and, uh, and you're going to follow, that you're going to follow the Torah. And so he just said it in general and he added, based on my interpretation. That way no one can come and say, well, I, I, didn't, I thought you had in mind, I had in mind a monopoly money, I had in mind a different law code, I had in mind only the, or, only the Torah Shebikhtav, not the oral law. And so Moshe, to avoid any such ambiguity, uh, said, it's it's based on my understanding of what this bedit will include, and that's why it was binding. But in the in the conclusion, the conclusion is that if they did have some strange private understanding, uh, that would not be valid. And so, really, Moshe did not have to say. Um, based on my understanding, if he didn't, even if he didn't say on my understanding, if he said something that was um, uh, non ambiguous language, that's not a dictionary different definition that they could say otherwise. If he said six thirteen, really that would have been fine also. And some, you know, uh, some uh, strange person in the back said was thinking the six thirteen um, uh, rules in um, in Monopoly. Then and he made up some rules, some rules of some game. Uh, so then that would be a private interpretation and would be invalid. So that's our conclusion, that private interpretations of words that are not common dictionary definitions are, is not a valid value. You can't claim and say, that's what I had in mind. Rather, we have in mind the public interpretation, even though there could be more than one valid public interpretation. Okay, next part of the Mishnah uh, says, person says, this bread will be prohibited to me if I did not see a snake that was as big as, um, uh, as the beam of an olive press. Now, we, so since that's impossible to see a beam that big, so we know he was exaggerating and the vow is not valid. We ask, We know of a case 
of a certain snake that was around at the time of King Shapur. Uh, he was the king of Persia. And they say it was so big that they threw 13 bundles of straw at it and he swallowed all of, the, all of these uh, bales of, of uh, straw. And so that was pretty big. So certainly it was um, bigger than an olive press beam. And so, uh, you know, why, why are you saying this is impossible? Shemuel says, no, we're talking about here a snake that is notched. Wait a second. Uh, every snake has notches, meaning some you know indentations in the uh, in its skin. Um, so the beam, you see the beam over here. We saw a picture of it has indentations on the top of it uh, in order to put the weights on it, and so they stay in place. So they would there would be indentations. Uh, on top of the beam. Uh, that's what a normal um, olive press beam looks like. So when he said, it's not that he saw one that big. It's, yeah, you can find snakes that big, but a snake with an indentation is unusual. That's what Shemuel says. Then we ask about Shemuel. Yeah, but don't all, all uh, um, snakes have such uh, notches in them? No, we are talking about on its back, right? That's very rare. The back uh, of the snake is nice and smooth usually. If he says, I saw one that was not just the size of a rod, but it had indentations like like a beam press, a press of a beam, that was would be a weird exaggeration. Okay, taruf. So if that's what the Mishnah meant, why not say what it meant that if a person says, I saw a snake with notches on it, then that's an exaggeration, but not, not about the size. Now, it wanted to teach us an incidental tangent that, um, that the beam of an olive press um, has notches on it. That's by definition. Now, why is that important to know? This is important to know for the, for definitions and buying and selling. If I sell you, if I tell you I'm going to sell you it's a beam of an olive press, then you can assume that it'll be one that already has the notches on them. So if it has notches, the sale is valid. If I just sell you a long stick, but it has no notches and I, I uh, offered it, as a beam for an olive press, then you can come and complain and say this the sale is invalid. You promised a beam of an olive press, but this one doesn't have notches in it. And that's why the Mishnah said it in that way, like the beam of an olive press, just teach us something about the laws, the definitions for the laws of buying and selling. All right. So that's that ends the category of exaggerated um, uh, vows. And now the third category of vows that are not valid, that uh, are, um, are, are uh, you don't even have to undo them. You don't need, a, you don't need to find regret or petach. Uh, they're just simply invalid. Nidre shigagot, vows taken by mistake and un, unintentionally, they um, are not, since they can't be fulfilled or were not fulfilled, it's okay. It says, A person says, um, this uh, bread will be prohibited to me if I ate yesterday or if I drank yesterday. And at the time that he said the vow, he thought that he didn't drink or didn't eat yesterday. Um, and then afterwards, he remembered, oh, I actually did eat, right? I thought I didn't. So he made a mistake. So since at the time that he made the vow, he thought it was true, but it turns out it wasn't, so it's based on false pretenses, and we say it's null and void. 
שאני אוכל ושאני שותה ושכח ואכל ושתה. The second case is if he makes a neder, this bread will be prohibited to me if I eat today or if I will eat, drink today. And then later on that day, he forgot that he made such a neder and he ate or drank. Uh, so in that case, also, this is a mistake. It's not like, you, yeah, I, I vowed, I made this neder and I'm going to violate it. No, he did it by mistake. He forgot that he did it. And this too is called a neder shigaga and it is null and void. Third case, Amar, Kunam ishtin henetli sheganva et kisi veshehiketa et beni. He says, benefiting from my wife will be like a korban. Benefiting from me will be like a korban to my wife, right? I am I, I'm prohibiting my wife from having any benefit from me. You know why? Because she stole my wallet or because she hit my son. Um, and it turns out, it was wrong. He, someone else stole his wallet or he just, he, he misplaced it. Um, and his son just, uh, you know, bumped into something. He didn't, she didn't hit him or someone else hit him. Or that she didn't, she didn't hit him or didn't steal him. So in this case, he made a mistake. Now this is not a condition. He didn't say, I, uh, my wife is prohibited to me. Uh, if she stole my wallet, in that case, uh, it would be a valid vow, just the condition will not have been triggered, so there, then it would be permitted. In this case, he just gives it as the reason, because, but he didn't make it as a condition. Uh, nevertheless, uh, this uh, he made it in error, because when he made the vow, he was making the vow against his wife, thinking that she did something wrong. In fact, she didn't do something wrong. Therefore, this neder was made on uh, false pretenses and is null and void. Okay, those are only dre shigagot. Raotan ochlin te'enim v'amar, harei alechem korban, v'nimsu abi ve'achi, v'ayu mahen acherim. A fourth case of a mistaken neder. Uh, someone looks out at his window, he sees in his garden that there are people that are eating his figs, right? They're just plucking them off right off the tree, stealing his figs, and there he wants to stop them. So he says, all these figs are forbidden to you like a korban. Okay, these people, they might be thieves, but they're not going to violate a vow. And so once he makes it prohibited with a vow, it is prohibited to them, and they cannot eat it. Uh, but then he looks carefully and finds that among the, there are many people there, but among them, one of the people eating his figs is his father and his brother. And he would not want to make them prohibited to his father and brother. They're always invited to come and take figs as, as they wish. So he made a vow with a wrong intention. He didn't intend for his father and brother. So certainly his father and brother would be exempt. A, a vow would not apply to them. The question is, does it apply to everybody else? Bet Shammai says that the vow is, does not apply to his uh, brother and his father, but it still applies to the others because he did have in mind that oh, everybody else should be prohibited to it. So even though part of it does not apply, the rest of it still does apply. Betilel says, no, once the language of the vow does not apply to some, it does not apply to anyone. Once it's undone, the whole thing is undone. Okay, the Gemara is going to concentrate on this machloket, Bet Shammai and Bet Hilel, um, the principle behind uh, behind whether we say once part of it is done, done, the whole thing is undone or not. Tana. First, we're going to clarify what about a shivu'ah beforehand in the previous category we saw that shivu'ot are more stringent. But when it comes to this category, just like a neder made an error, 
is permitted, so too a shivuah made unintentionally in error is permitted. What will be an example of a swear, shivuah, that's made in error? Like these two students of Rav, Rav Kana and Rav Ase, they're both sitting in the lecture hall or and hearing Rav, or they both heard a, a tradition in the name of Rav. And each one is so sure that this is what they heard in the lecture, and they make a shivua. No, Rav interpreted this as A, and the other one says, no, Rav said B. And they make a, they both make a swear. So are, isn't one of them lying? Well, technically, they can't both be true. But they weren't purposely lying, right? They really thought that Rav said that. That was their understanding, their interpretation. That's how they heard it. And so when they make the shivua, they thought they were saying something true. Even if it turns out later, Rav shows up and says, no, this is what I meant. Or someone else says, no, I have the notes right here. Right? This is what the person meant. Uh, this is what I've meant, so it turns out they're, they're false. It's okay. This, this vow was null and void because it was done in error. It was not a purposeful lie. Um, you know, this could apply today when someone makes, uh, makes an oath on the stand and he says something that he thinks is true. Right? Uh, you know, the, when, when did this happen? It was October 3rd, right? Uh, turns out he made a mistake. And it was actually October second, uh, but he wasn't. He didn't. Um, he wasn't meaning to lie. He just. He, he just uh, made. Uh, made just made an error. So I don't think that would be called perjury, if he had no intention to uh, to lie to the court. Okay, Ra Otan Ochlin. Now the, this this last example where I see some people go out in my garden eating my figs and I say they're all prohibited to you like Korban. Uh, we're quoting a Mishnah from later on in this Masechet on Daf Samech Vav. And from this, we're going to see the uh, principle that is used by Betilel. Um, Betilel says that once part of it is undone, because my father and my brother were there eating the figs, so and I didn't mean the the neder to apply to them. Therefore, the whole thing is undone. Where do we find this principle? It's the same principle that Rabbi Akiva said. And here is a different example where a person says, "I um, I vow that I'm not going to drink wine um, for the entire year." Okay, and now he comes to undo his vow, and so the rabbis will say, listen, you, 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 you know, maybe you didn't realize that when you say a whole year, that includes Shabbat and Yom Tov, and you have to have wine, or Onik Shabbat, for Kiddush, Shabbat, and Yom Tov, so uh, surely you did not mean that you were going to violate Onik Shabbat and Onik Yom Tov, but when you made that vow, and that's a valid way to find a petach, find an unforeseen circumstance uh, that the person did not intend. So in such a case, uh, what would be the consequence of applying this petach? At first, the rabbis thought that only those days, Shabbat and Yom Tov, during the year will be permitted, but the rest of the days, he made a vow, and that still applies. So a regular weekday, um, he would be prohibited from drinking wine. In other words, in the, in the original uh, understanding of the rabbis, they said that 
even though even though part of it was permitted, Shabbat and Yom Tov, nevertheless, the rest of the vow is still valid. Until Rabbi Akiva came and he said, no, a new principle, this is the real right way to understand it, that if you have a neder and part of it was undone, then the entire thing is undone. You can't just have half a neder, right? If you didn't realize that within that neder, there were Shabbat and Yom Tov and he'd violate Onik Shabbat, then he wouldn't have made it, then the entire vow is undone, and on a regular weekday, he can have wine. So you see, Betilel, who says, once a part of it is undone, the whole thing is undone, that explains his position. Since my father or my brother were there, and I would not have made the vow for them, so the whole thing is also undone. Okay, now we're going to have, uh, we're going to end with um, two interpretations of Betilel and Betshamai. What exactly uh, was the, what was his intention when he was said he wants his, wants his father and, and, or brother to have the figs? And um, depending on the exact formulation, uh, which one of those did Betshamai and Betilel mean when they were arguing? So, uh, so the case is at first he sees the people out in his eating eating his figs, and he said, "All of you are prohibited to my figs." But then he saw, you know, his father says, "Wait, it's me." And he saw that it's his, his father there. So at that point, we ask him, you know, what would you have said if you knew your father was there? He says, oh, if I knew one of them was my father, I still would have prohibited everybody else. And I would have said, you're all prohibited except for father. In that case, asurin mutar. In that case, Bet Shammai and Bet Hilel would both agree that the neder sticks. Um, uh, that we do not apply hutar miksato hutar kulo because he's not changing his formulation. He's just adding to it. Um, before he said you're all prohibited, and now he's adding. Oh, well, here's what I meant. Would have meant to say if I knew my father was there, I would have excluded him. So in that case, even bet. Um, uh, even Betilel, even Betilel would agree with Bet Shammai that the neder still applies to everyone else, and the father is permitted. This is not called a new neder; it's a continuation of the same neder with a quick clarification. Surely he would have had in mind had he known his father was there to begin with. He would not have included him. He would have said, "Except for my father." So there's no machloket about that case. The machloket is limited to the following. If after he realized that it was father, his father was one of the people, and then he then he said, you know, is that what did you mean mean to uh, refuse him? What would you have said? Um, and he says, no, I would have said this person A and person B. He knows the names of the people there. Um, they are prohibited, but my father is permitted. In that case, he's saying an entire, entirely new formulation. First, he said, all of you are prohibited. Now he's identifying the exact people. So in that case, that's where Betilel would disagree with Bet Shammai. And he would say, this is an entirely new formulation. So once you're undoing part of the formulation, and you're not saying anymore that everyone is prohibited, instead you're naming people. So then, since the new old formulation is gone, 
Um, therefore, uh, this is entirely undone, and they're all permitted. Whereas Bet Shammai would say, no, never. Still, still, it's the same. It's still, still a continuation. And once, uh, and even though he's excluding his father and naming the people, that same thing, naming the people or saying you're all prohibited, Bet Shammai says that is the same neder. And even though one person is excluded, the rest of the people are still prohibited. All that is Rabbah's interpretation. Uh, Rabbah, however, is going to shift it over and say, says, actually, the second case that Rabbah brought, Rabbah is bringing first as the one that they would not, uh, they would all agree about. If at the time, after he saw his father, we asked him, what would you have said if you knew your father was there? Oh, I would have said, Mr. A, Mr. B are prohibited, but my father is permitted. In that case, Betilel and Betshamai, even Betshamai uh, would agree with Betilel and say, they're all permitted because this is an entirely new formulation that he's saying. And so you can't say that it's just part of the old formulation that he's making an exception to. This is entirely new. Now, he, now he's saying he's identifying the people. And so, in fact, they're all permitted, right? Um, if he wants, he can say a new vow and say this person, this person. But if he's trying to clarify his vow, this is what I would have said. Yeah, but what you would have said is not actually what you said. So, therefore, the entire vow, you're changing the entire vow. You're changing the formulation. And so the original vow does not apply at all. And every, everyone is permitted. But where is the machloket? If um, after he sees his father, they said, what would you have said if you knew your father was there? He says, oh, in that case, I would have said, just as I originally said. I just would have added, oh, in that case, that's where we have a machloket, where according to Bet Hillel, since uh, once he once he excluded Abba, so then he, he he changed part of it. Then the whole thing is changed, and uh, and they're all permitted, right? And you so and any change undoes the whole thing. Whereas according to Bet Shammai, they would say no. Here, the original formulation is still there. Kulechem Asurin. He's just clarifying what he meant by it, and so therefore the vow sticks, and everyone is prohibited. He's clarifying that the father is permitted, so the father only is permitted. Good. Uh, one last uh, clarification about Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel's principles. We're going to correlate it with a different machloket. Bet Shammai sabre la kirbi meir damar tefos lashon rishon. Bet Hillel sabre la kirbi yose damar bigmar devarav adam nitpas. There's another machloket in different mishnah of Timura, where Rabbi Meir says if someone says two things, we um, hold on to the first expression, the original expression. And that's what Bet Shammai is thinking because he says, well, the person originally said they're all prohibited. And even though now he's making a clarification, fine, he can make a clarification. But that original formulation, that still sticks. And that's why they are all prohibited except for the father, even though he now made a new clarification. Whereas Betilel thinks uh, like Rabbi Yoseh in that in that machloket, who says that we follow the person's conclusion, right? His the last word that he said 
um, is the one that takes takes priority and takes priority over the original formulation. But since in this case the last interpret the, the last statement he said is fundamentally different from the first one and applies to different people, therefore the first one does not apply anymore. And if the first statement he said that's when he made the vow, if that does not, not apply anymore, then the whole thing is null and void. And that is Betilel's position that and explains why once. Once he undoes part of it in his second formulation, then the second formulation undoes the entirety of the original formulation. And that's why Betilel says, everyone can eat the figs. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.